Hello, you're listening to the Social Protection Podcast. Welcome to the next episode in our special six-part series brought to you by ODI and GIZ in partnership with socialprotection.org. I'm delighted again to welcome Francesca Bastali from ODI as guest host for this series. We'll be back with a regular episode in August. Hello and welcome to the Social Protection Podcast special series. I'm your host, Francesca Bastali. Today's episode is part of a six-episode series based on an ODI GIZ-funded project on social protection response to COVID-19 and beyond. Lessons learned for adaptive social protection. Over these six episodes, we'll be asking, has COVID-19 marked a turning point for social protection? In our ODI GIZ study, we covered six thematic areas, each with an accompanying paper. Each week of this podcast special series, I'll be joined by the lead author of one of the papers, along with an expert discussant. In this week's episode, we look at social protection in urban contexts since the onset of COVID-19, and especially at social assistance and cash transfers. When COVID-19 hit, urban social assistance was limited in many countries. More than half the world's population now lives in urban areas, but most social assistance programs across low- and middle-income countries were designed for rural areas. COVID-19 has exposed this gap. Urban residents faced high risk of infection and livelihood losses as COVID-19 spread, as a result in part of overcrowding, poor hygiene and sanitation, and widespread informal employment in urban contexts. At the three-month mark, urban areas accounted for 95% of COVID cases, and in some countries reported higher rates of job and income losses than elsewhere. The concerns about high urban job, income, and food insecurity have persisted as the crisis has unfolded. Estimates of the new poor, those that are pushed into poverty by the crisis, suggest that a large share will be urban. In an effort to contain the impact of the crisis, measures were taken to step up provision in urban settings. And in some countries, we've seen the extension of social assistance to urban dwellers for the first time, at least in the short term, as part of the emergency response. What do we know about how well these adjustments have worked as crisis response for urban dwellers to date? What lessons are emerging for social protection? Some of the innovations may hold potential to address this urban gap in the longer term, but at the same time, there may be limited scope for longer term change. What is the emerging evidence and learning for addressing the urban social protection gap? Here to discuss these questions with me today are Kitty Rowland and Ugo Gentilini. Kitty is Research Fellow and Co-Director of the Center for Social Protection at the Institute of Development Studies. She's also lead author of the paper, COVID-19, Crisis is Opportunity for Urban Cash Transfers, co-authored with Edward Archibald and Christy Lowe. Ugo Gentilini is Global Lead for Social Assistance at the World Bank and coordinator and lead author of the Living Paper on Social Protection and Jobs Responses to COVID-19. Kitty, Ugo, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Francesca. Great to be with you. So COVID-19 hit against the backdrop of wider trends, and I'm thinking in particular of urban population increases and of the urbanization of poverty in many countries. Ugo, could you tell us about these wider trends and what we know about the impact of COVID-19 in urban centers? 
historically, urbanization has been a positive force of development and economic growth as countries urbanize their general level of poverty tends to decline. Still, about 80% of global poverty today is located in rural areas. Now, while all this is kind of positive news in terms of the role of urbanization, in some contexts, urbanization is happening at the magnitude and at the speed that is challenging to manage. So Africa is urbanizing at the rate that is twice that of Europe there is one urban dweller that is added in African cities every second. That's basically 2.6 million a month, or almost a billion by 2050. So when demand for services and jobs in cities outstrips the capacity of uh, cities and governments to provide them, then urbanization can generate what is called congestion economies. And the emergence of slums and informal settlements is the manifestation of that. Consider that over half of the urban population in developing countries lives in uh, slums or informal settlements. And that rate goes uh, up to 90% in countries like uh, South Sudan or the Central African Republic. And also, just to conclude, Opportunities in cities are not always uh, present for everyone. Youth unemployment in urban areas, for example, is about 25% or 10 percentage points higher than rural areas. That has also been part of uh, discontent and uh, social unrest. In fact, uh, 80% of the episodes of social unrest, there are about uh, 14,000 such cases over the past 30 years, occur in urban areas. Plus, there is this process of ongoing urbanization of prices, precisely because of these movements of cities and the growth of cities in terms of population. The poorest people tend to move and live in areas that are more exposed, exposed to natural disasters, such as riverbanks. In fact, the number of people that is projected to be exposed to typhoons is going to increase from 370 million in 2000 to 870 million in 2050. So we don't see just the urbanization of poverty, but we also see the urbanization of crisis. What do we know about the impact of COVID-19 in urban centers? Kitty, let's start with you. So in thinking about the impact of COVID-19 on people living in urban areas, a lot of that links with what Ugo just mentioned about urbanization of poverty, and particularly also the characteristics of poverty in urban areas, which of course overlap with poverty everywhere, but also have some specific characteristics. And I'm thinking here about overcrowding, for example, and the living conditions. People have poor rights of tenancy, live closely together, and generally find it more difficult to negotiate housing conditions. And there's also an issue in terms of access to basic services, which tends to be much more monetized in urban centers, uh, where people have to pay for water, for waste management, for sanitation, for example. If we think about urban residents living more closely together, also making use of services um, in groups, sharing facilities, that means that they're at greater risk of infection 
at greater risk of the health consequences of the pandemic. And if we think about the consequences from an economic perspective, we can again see that people living in urban areas are particularly vulnerable. Uh, so restrictions that were put in place to hold the spread of infection meant that people weren't able to move around, weren't able to go to work. So essentially, for many people, it has meant staying at home and not being able to have any form of cash coming in that they would otherwise earn doing various jobs, having their own businesses, etc. And with a large informal workforce in urban areas, so workers who don't have access to formal employment benefits, for example, there was no fallback option for them. The cash just stopped coming in overnight. And particularly, it's this aspect that has really woken up policymakers and incentivized this move to expansion of social assistance measures in response to COVID. And of course, all this happened against the backdrop of already relatively low provision of social assistance or cash transfers in urban areas prior to the pandemic. I fully agree with what uh, Kitty said. You know, there are many estimates out there on the poverty impact of the pandemic. One of the most uh, conservative ones estimates that between 88 and 115 million additional people were pushed into poverty in 2020. And 30% of them are in urban areas. This is based on high-frequency surveys. Kitty mentioned uh, the issue of proximity and saturation of services. In fact, an interesting statistic is also that uh, about 96% of Africa housing doesn't meet the WHO COVID-19 standards. So in a way, what made the urban areas uh, particularly exposed to COVID is the fact that housing themselves, settlements themselves, could be vectors for the pandemic. So on one hand, uh, people were encouraged not to work and to stay home. On the other hand, homes themselves were part of the problem. COVID-19 has exposed and exacerbated vulnerabilities of urban dwellers. It's also highlighted the limitations or, and low provision of social assistance in urban areas in many countries. What did the social protection response to the crisis in urban areas look like? Kiti, can you give us some examples? What types of measures were taken and what adjustments were made to step up provision to people living in urban centers? So when we look at what happened in urban areas in response to COVID, we can think about maybe three different types or three different ways in which social assistance was implemented. The first one is expansion of existing schemes. The second one is tweaking them in ways that are more responsive to how COVID played out. And the third one is the establishing of new schemes. Now, the expansion, the first way in which social assistance responded, can be done in, also in two ways again. So the first one is what is called horizontal, meaning that existing schemes expand um, the number of uh, beneficiaries that they cover. So, for example, in China, the Debao cash transfer scheme, which already covered many uh, people across the country, included more urban residents in recognition of their greater vulnerability. But programs can also be expanded vertically, meaning that 
existing beneficiaries receive more support, again, recognizing that the pandemic has made things worse for them. And here an example is Ethiopia and its Urban Productive Safety Net program, where people who were already receiving cash transfers received top-up payments of roughly $10 a month, which was paid in two, three-month installments. So this is one way in which social assistance responded by expanding schemes that were already in place. Another way in which schemes responded was about, again, about schemes that were already in place, but slightly adjusting how they were implemented. And this relates particularly to so-called conditional cash transfer programs, where normally its beneficiaries have to abide by certain criteria in order to receive the cash. So, for example, they have to make sure that their children are immunized or that they go to school. But one can imagine that in light of concerns of infection as well as mobility constraints or restrictions on travel, adhering to those conditions is not desirable or possible. So, for example, in Indonesia's program, as well as in the Philippines, those conditions were, were waived and people received their cash transfers regardless. And then the third way in which social assistance was implemented was through the establishment of entirely new programs. And this actually represents quite a substantial number of programs that were implemented in urban areas, partly because so few were in place before the pandemic uh, hit. So a whole range of different schemes, precisely because the pandemic put into focus how vulnerable people living in urban areas and particularly working in the informal sector are. Ugo, would you like to also share some examples? Sure. I think that programs have, uh, in general, been kept simple in design. There has been a lot of innovations in easing the administration and the procedures to access those programs. And that is not just in uh, low and middle income countries, but in high high-income countries as well. It's also actually fascinating to observe the emergence of a number of digital programs, and, and not only in cash transfers, but even in programs like public works. There are examples of digital public works in uh, Mali and Kenya and Tanzania. There is an initiative that included seven pilot activities, which are very much at the first phase. Um, and relatively small scale, covering about uh, 1,300 workers, but quite promising in, in the way and, and the type of activities that those programs establish. For example, they include the geolocation of uh, slum urban services, like in, in Nairobi, or the validation of building heights in uh, Dar es Salaam, or the classification of imagery and the validation of that imagery on the ground and the identification of solid uh, waste uh, uh, management practices in Bamako and in Mali. So the pandemic, uh, in a way, elicited and, uh, and encouraged these sort of innovations that are likely also to be of potential interest post-pandemic. So, Kitty, Ugo has already mentioned a number of ways in which adjustments or innovations were made to the operational and implementation aspects of the measures taken. Could you expand a bit on this drawing on your study and the case studies you looked at in depth and tell us a bit more about the processes of 
stepping up or rolling out social protection in, in urban areas? Implementation of new schemes as well as changes to existing schemes build on what was already in place. And of course, that's easier to do with existing schemes. And we see examples of that in Peru, for example, or Indonesia or Ethiopia, where the existing lists of beneficiaries were used as a basis either to distribute more support to those existing lists or to expand them to include more people. What we do see, however, is also the limitations of using those existing structures in rapid rollout of additional support, uh, whether that's more support to the same people or new support to new people. So, for example, in Peru, in first instance, the social registries and databases that were already in place were used as a foundation to implement emergency measures. But very quickly, it became clear that informal workers who had lost their income were not included in these registries. No information was available about them. And so a new scheme was then put in place with a new effort to collect information and go through a process of targeting to ensure that they would also receive the support that, that they need. So having that foundation, building on what's already in place was incredibly important, but also showed that they weren't necessarily strong enough to facilitate a rapid rollout. I would like to mention a positive example though, and that was in Madagascar, where the foundation was very much not just about a single scheme, but about the coordination mechanisms that were in place that had underpinned previous cash transfer and social assistance schemes. So there the multi-stakeholder cash working group was working really well already before COVID. Uh, with strong partnerships between governments, international partners. And then when COVID hit, very quickly people came together to discuss what was needed. And in this case, this was a new scheme implemented in urban areas. And we can see that Madagascar was a positive example of where things were implemented relatively quickly and where people actually received support whilst the lockdown restrictions and other restrictions were still in place. So it's a positive lesson of strong foundations actually helping to speed things up. And not just in the case of extending or expanding existing schemes, but even in the case of setting up new schemes. So in a large-scale covariate crisis like this one, the timeliness and scale at which adjustments are made and, and provision is stepped up to the affected population groups is key. How effective were measures taken in reaching the most vulnerable and supporting them through the crisis? You've already touched upon this, but can you tell us a bit more about, as we say, the, 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 the speed at which provision was adjusted and delivered and the adequacy in terms of coverage and type of provision in the urban context? Kitty, perhaps we'll start with you. When we talk about adequacy and also coverage, what I think we saw across the various case studies we looked at is that governments also had to strike a really tricky balance between the two, between reaching as many people as possible and reaching people with the most adequate support possible. And here we heard from those working in Malawi that there were quite a few discussions around their emergency cash transfer scheme. On the one hand, trying to provide relatively generous cash transfers that would cover basic expenses versus reaching households that were really in need. 
which wouldn't be possible if there were high cash transfers for, for budgetary reasons. So in the end, a compromise was reached that targeted uh, about 35% of urban households and then provided a flat rate cash transfer to cover basic food needs, so not the entire basket of expenditures or expenses. Uh, and also this was a flat rate, so it didn't take into account different sizes of households, for example, of different needs of different members. We heard Ugo talk about some of the excitement in particularly urban areas and trying to roll out schemes quickly using digital tools, for example. And that's both in terms of identification and targeting, as well as payments. And whilst there's a lot of positive lessons to be learned, particularly in how it facilitated the speed of the rollout, I think there's also lessons to be learned around how it may have excluded some people who are either not digitally literate, who don't have access to those tools, and who generally find it difficult to um, be informed about what schemes they might be eligible for and have access to any kind of support that they have a right to. I think that was probably a missing piece in a lot of the support that we saw rolled out. And in part, that's because there was just very little time to take this into consideration. But it does point out that if we think about the future, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute, this is something that requires further attention. Yeah, I think we we are still in the middle of the crisis. There are emerging insights, and Kitty already alluded to a number of those metrics, uh, uh, on adequacy, for example, that depends uh, on the objective that the program had and for how long assistance was, was supposed to last. For example, we know that uh, in urban areas, transfers were um, about 70% of monthly GDP per capita, so quite generous, but they might have been adequate for the duration of the program, but would they be adequate for a year, for example? So, as mentioned, programs tend to be generous, but fairly short-term in duration. Um, it's also very clear that countries that did have uh, good delivery systems were able to respond quicker. It takes between 6 to 55 days less to reach beneficiaries using pre-existing registries instead of setting up new systems. And we know that in urban areas, uh, many systems were new. So that's probably an interesting question to explore, the quantification of uh, the speed of response in, in urban areas in particular. Uh, on the other side, however, electronic payments get to people 35 days before manual methods. And we know that in urban areas, uh, there has been a wide application of electronic uh, methods. So if uh, systems were largely new and those might have been less rapid than pre-existing ones, that may be offset by the wider use of electronic payments that tend to be faster. So there are these two forces going on in a number of cities that may affect the performance. One final point is that it's true that the urban areas also present, on average, conducive environments for implementation, better connectivity, better services, but at the same time, we also have seen that uh, some countries uh, like Ethiopia and Uganda did have plans for having new programs for informal sector workers in particular that didn't necessarily materialize. So uh, there are some uh, clear advantages in the sort of implementation environment that uh, is presented in urban areas, uh, but uh, that is not always, uh, that was not always the case necessarily. 
So what are the some of the emerging lessons from the experience to date over the course of, of the last year? Um, are there examples of the a potential to address social assistance or social protection shortcomings and gaps in urban contexts in the longer term? Uh, and I'm referring to this both with respect to a priority for better preparedness for future shocks and crises, but also uh, against the potential of addressing the long-standing social protection gap in urban contexts. Um, Kiti, what are these from your perspective? A few lessons that I think we can learn from these experiences in the past year and still ongoing in urban areas. I think not all countries that have implemented support in urban areas will continue to do so once the pandemic is over. They will have seen it as an emergency response and may think about implementing an emergency response in urban areas again, if and when that's needed. Whilst in other places, this may have opened the door for more continuous support in urban areas. But in either case, it's clear that foundations need to be in place in order to do this. And that means having the information about people and about their vulnerabilities, whether that's in a social registry or otherwise. It also means really drawing on the lessons learned of the various mechanisms through which data was collected and payments were delivered. So if we learn that certain payment modalities, which are more digital, can reach people much quicker, how can we also make sure that they reach everybody who is in need uh, so that nobody is excluded in future? Another element I think that we need to learn moving forward is around the different types of vulnerabilities, if you will, and the different picture of urban poverty and how social assistance can best respond to those issues. And then the final piece where I think there's a lot of learning and emerging lessons for the future is also around the issue of social contracts and whether, in fact, the experiences in many countries in the last year have led to a shift in social contract, in the expectations that urban residents have from governments, whether that's national or local, in providing them with support in times of crisis. There's some suggestions that in urban areas, residents might now be more aware of the fact that they can ask for support and that they might want to do so in future. In others, not necessarily so obvious. And so it will be interesting to see moving forward whether the experiences that we've seen in the last year will lead to a more substantial change in people asking for social assistance and demanding for that to be put in place. Thank you, Kitty. What are the, these emerging evidence and lessons for you, Ugo? The first lesson in my mind is that replicating rural design doesn't work. So there needs to be a deliberate attempt to adapt uh, the design and implementation in a vast number of ways. And I think the crisis response compounds pre-existing experience in that matter and enriches, I think, our knowledge on how to do that. Another lesson is that urban communities can be mobilized. There is this myth that uh, community ties are weaker in urban areas. Actually, they are different. And there are, for example, Ethiopia's neighborhood committees, uh, in Madagascar, the Lohorano committee, or in, in Cote d'Ivoire, the community leaders or neighborhood chiefs, they, they all... Uh, contributed in different ways in program design by 
providing vulnerability information, helping with pre-registration. So there is a, there is a whole agenda on how to involve communities and place them at the center of design and implementation of programs in urban areas. Another big lesson is that uh, the scale-up of interventions uh, has seldom been connected to early warning systems that track the evolution of particular risks, whether it's, there is a lot of experience now on the climate side, like tracking the evolution of a possible drought and uh, triggering assistance accordingly, there is some lateral learning, I think, that could uh, inform a more pandemic-sensitive response moving forward. So can we have uh, health indicators that are part of those early warning systems and uh, connect them to scale-up decisions of cash transfers? That's something that is not really happening at the moment, and it has a lot of potential for, in terms of timeliness of, uh, of assistance. Let me also conclude on a note regarding framing. There are two elements here. One is that still in urban areas, there is a certain degree of skepticism towards cash transfers and their possible effects in creating dependency or inducing migration or disincentivizing work. Again, those cut across uh, rural urban areas, but are particular present in urban areas. And I think there is uh, an important role for evidence building and awareness generation there and um, countering, I think, uh, some of those fears with facts that tend to actually show exactly the opposite, that cash transfers uh, actually can generate the work and uh, can be perfectly compatible with incentives. So there is a bit of some framing work that needs to ha uh, happen so to make seat administrators see exactly where those programs fit. Katie, Hugo, as you know, the, the guiding overarching question of this podcast special series is, could this be a turning point for social protection? And my question really is, you know, if this crisis and the disruption and innovations it, it brings is to mark a turning point for addressing the social protection urban gap, what are the main things we need to focus on? What need to be our priorities? Hugo, over to you first. I would say that six years ago, uh, I published a paper calling for stronger urban social protection systems. This year, I published another paper calling for stronger social protection systems. So if urban social protection systems don't get the strength and moving forward, I can safely conclude that I'm not uh, very influential. I think that um, at the moment, there is a lot of discussion on whether COVID is a turning point for social protection urban context or not. I think that it could potentially be an inflection point if countries leverage the efforts and investments made during this year and translate those investments in permanent systems. I think it's natural that part of the efforts did serve pure crisis response objectives, but it's very clear also that there is so much learning. The practices that were put in place were so rich that they are bound to inform permanent systems and improve them. And I think that as part of that process, it's likely that we're gonna see more urban social protection moving forward. But that also needs to be tied, I think, to a renewed framing, a renewed attention on the role of social protection in societies. And for that also to happen, there needs to be an alignment of fiscal capabilities, 
of delivery systems, uh, but also of political incentives to make social protection a strong component of the development process moving forward, including in cities. I think that what we've seen in the last year in urban areas in response to COVID has definitely shifted the needle when it comes to social assistance response in urban areas. I think there is now great recognition that people in urban areas are indeed vulnerable to many shocks like people in rural areas, that they also have deep levels of deprivation that need to be addressed, and that it's possible to implement social assistance in urban areas in ways that are impactful, meaningful, um, and effective. Now, of course, how that will play out in future is a big question mark. I think for some countries, this is definitely the starting point of integrating an urban social assistance scheme in their social protection system as a form of continuous support, especially for those most vulnerable or at the lowest end of the income distribution. But for other countries, it might be that the urban focus is now also integrated in more of a shock responsive element of social protection, whereby it's clear that if another shock happens, whether that's a health crisis like COVID or more climate related, urban areas are now firmly integrated into that system. And I think that's definitely something um, that follows from the pandemic and, and everything that we've seen in the last year, year and a half. Uh, so I am mildly optimistic, of course, keeping in mind the pressures that Ugo mentioned in terms of funding, government and political priorities. But certainly, I think there's a lot to be optimistic about. Thank you both, Kitty and Ugo. Thanks for having me, Francesca. Great pleasure. Thank you, Francesca. Great to be with you. If you'd like to read more about this topic, the paper by Kiti with Edward Archibald and Christy Lowe is available in the podcast show notes, along with other papers and resources from the wider ODI-GIZ study. You'll also find Ugo's two papers on urban social protection that he mentioned. Please also check out the earlier podcast episodes from this special series and stay tuned for next week's episodes where we'll be discussing COVID-19, social protection and gender inequality. The Social Protection Podcast is a production of socialprotection.org, which is the place to go online for free information, research and community on all things social protection. You can follow us on Twitter at SP underscore Gateway and find us on Facebook, YouTube and LinkedIn. Subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast provider and stay tuned for the next episode.